mercenaries, or non-governmental military forces seem to be present in almost every conflict in the world today. We return to address the rise, concerns, and options regarding quasi-mercenary organizations in the next few episodes of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer. The idea behind these podcasts is that the broad outlines of waging war have remained constant through history. Therefore, we can learn a lot about war and hopefully how to avoid war by looking at the mirror of history. Just as important, this looking glass may provide insights about ending armed conflict while setting conditions for a just and sustainable peace. Mercenary-like organizations are not a new topic in these series of podcasts. I discuss the topic and have been joined by noted experts in the field such as Dr. Deborah Avant, Dr. Yovana Renito, and Mr. Doug Brooks. Reviewing those podcasts, I get the feeling that I missed something very important. I discussed who the main actors are, where they're operating, some of the difficulties they present, and some international initiatives that could affect the activity of these organizations. But in trying to fit each of these into a small block of time, I missed developing some very important points. These include why the use of these quasi-mercenary organizations are becoming more popular, how the rise of these organizations are leading to regional and global instability, how they directly affect net the national interests of the West, and particularly the United States, since that's where most of my listeners come from. Also worth discussing are efforts to fill the legitimate need these organizations provide in legitimate ways. Doing this will take several podcasts and more than the usual time limit I give myself for each podcast. But since some comments to these podcasts say that these need to be longer anyway, I'm, I'm not so worried about that. But first I need to cover something else I haven't talked about in the interests of saving time. A little about myself and why I keep coming back to this topic. I retired from active duty in the Army as a colonel with 30 years in uniform with a mix of mostly active but some reserve component duty. I spent almost all of that time as a cavalry officer, finishing qualified for civil affairs in Army and then Defense Acquisition Corps. I spent my overseas time in Germany during the Cold War and the Balkans, First Gulf War, Second Gulf War, the sequel, and then my final deployment overseas was with the United Nations in Africa. In my return trip to the Persian Gulf, I was assigned as the Chief of Staff for the reconstruction of Iraq. We had a small budget of $22.5 billion executing 2,300 reconstruction projects across the country. But when my boss, Rear Admiral David Nash, told me what it was he really wanted me to do as Chief of Staff, he gave me two missions. One was to get his staff to work together. That's not quite as easy as it seemed, but it was actually an accomplishable job. The second requirement was, as he said, we think that there are about 20,000 mercenaries swanning about the countryside. Your job is to get control of them and to assure that they are in fact helping rather than getting in the way of the reconstruction effort. Well, we actually made great progress in that, and when I returned, I found myself to be considered the expert within the Defense Department on private security company operations and oversight. As a result, when the Swiss government in partnership with the International Committee of the Red Cross, launched something which was at first called the Swiss Initiative and ultimately produced what was known as the Montreux Document, I was selected to be one of the three U.S. negotiators for that. Shortly after the endorsement of the Montreux Document began the second phase of the Swiss Initiative, which was to be an industry code of conduct 
which demonstrated their commitment to the same principles that were enshrined in the mantra document. It was about that time that I retired from active duty, but I was immediately recalled into the Pentagon as a Department of Defense civilian because the work wasn't done. First thing was, Congress had directed the Defense Department to develop industry, what they called business and operational standards, or what we turned into was quality management standards for private security company operations to be integrated into all Defense Department contracts for private security. The completion of the Private Security Company International Code of Conduct actually had to dovetail into this because the two documents had to support each other. After that, there was the formation of the Association to Oversee Implementation of the International Code of Conduct, known as, imaginatively, the International Code of Conduct Association. At the same time, we had to figure out a way to keep the Montreux document process itself alive, growing, with more governments participating and for it to mean something more than just words on a page. So we came up with the Montreux Document Forum, which got all of the participating states of the Montreux Document together on an occasional basis to discuss the issues that they're having in implementing the Montreux Document. I was also responsible for developing federal and defense regulations governing private security company contracting and oversight, and I advised the various combatant commands as well as the Army Contracting Command on contracting and oversight of private security companies. In my last year as a Department of Defense civilian, the attention began to switch to the M part of PMSC, in other words, those military functions. These are most typified by uh, the rise of the Wagner Group and other quasi-mercenary organizations. However, about that same time, the office that I was assigned to was disbanded, and as I was fully vested for retirement, I retired. However, I still consult with the U.S. government, the industry, the International Code of Conduct, sometimes the U.N., and even other governments. What haunts me since my retirement is the exploitation of the good work we did by organizations that don't adhere to the Swiss initiatives, and our failure, as the United States, to incorporate private military services into the frameworks and regulation we developed for private security. I see the rise of quasi-mercenary organizations, such as Wagner, as an outcome of that failure. So that's enough about me. So where is this podcast or these series of podcasts going from here? Well, I'm going to begin by talking about the general situation, the background, including why the use of such organizations are on the rise, and surprisingly, why some people think that they're actually a force for good and not for a force of instability. Then I'm going to talk about the overall threat to stability and security in Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and Northern Africa, and in Eastern Europe. Working from there, I'll address threats to specific U.S. interests. This is because uh, both most of my listeners come from the United States. I'm an American, and American interests really still do affect the rest of the world. So these threats and the interest of these threats will draw from the current Interim National Security Strategy Strategic Guidance and address the threat to the United States' use of contractor support to security and stability. We'll then discuss interaction with other players and various options for response to the threat posed by these quasi-mercenary organizations. So, as I said, let's begin with the general situation. So then, as I began this podcast about seven and a half minutes ago, the use of putatively private combat provider organizations is on the rise. Now, Back in 2005, 2006, 2007, when we were negotiating the Montreux document, 
I suggested to the assembly, assembly there that we include combat provider firms using examples of the former companies of Executive Outcomes and Sandline. Now, these two organizations were decisive to resolving conflicts in sub-Saharan Africa, but no longer existed at that time. I was told by the Swiss and the International Committee of the Red Cross that those were relics of history and it's unlikely that we would ever see their kind again. In reality, although such organizations had either ceased operations or had been transformed, such as Sandline being transformed into the PSC Aegis, the services they provided were still very much in need, but they were now provided in ways that did not meet the same standards that those former private military companies had practiced. Six years later, in 2014, the Russian invasion of Ukraine made it clear that the combat provider private military company was not a relic of history. In that conflict, the Russians used irregular forces with military equipment and high degree of training, but which were not officially part of the Russian army, nor were they under the command and control of the pro-Russian insurgents in eastern Ukraine. At that time, these irregulars were not known by a company name, especially as Moscow tried to deny their existence. Subsequent investigation shows, however, that these irregulars operated with organization typical of later, better-known Russian PMCs. Eventually, these forces began to appear outside of Russia, first providing ships with counter-piracy protection, then on the ground in Syria and Africa. Names and personnel associated with these organizations changed and may have little permanence or formal meaning, used and disposed of according to military or political expediency. Names such as the Slavonic Corps, Patriot, Enot, RSB Group, and most infamously, the Wagner Group, may all be matters of convenience or the Russian term Maskirovka. This is the Russian term for military deception. This is possible because, unlike Western PMSCs, most of these Russian organizations do not have formal corporate structures and are not registered as corporations in Russia. Foreign registries, where they exist, may be little more than shell companies. The reason they can operate without such formal corporate entities is because they are not really private at all. They operate on behalf of the Russian government to promote specific Russian interests. Wagner, if that organization still exists as a discrete entity, is known to have strong ties to the Russian military intelligence, the GRU. Wagner was known to use GRU facilities for training in Russia. Passports for its personnel were facilitated by, and perhaps issued by, the GRU. And some of its leaders, such as Dmitry Utkin, who is Wagner himself, are known GRU officers. As a side note, Dmitry Utkin has not been seen in public for four years, which may be an indicator that Wagner may no longer exist as an independent entity, but Wagner-type operations continue. These Russian irregular forces, as supposedly private entities operating independently of Moscow, conduct security, training, and combat operations in Syria, Libya, the Central African Republic, and continue to support the insurgency in Ukraine. Activities of Wagner and other groups, including the Cossacks, are also reported in the Balkans, Chechnya, South Caucasus, Iraq, Serbia, Bosnia, South Sudan, Somalia, and the recent conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Wagner, as an organization, suffered a noteworthy defeat at the hands of insurgents in Mozambique, causing them to be withdrawn from that country. Now, I make particular mention of Mozambique because it's a convenient segue into talking about other private combat provider companies. When Wagner withdrew, it was replaced by a South African company known as Dyke Advisory Group, D-Y-C-K. 
Dyke's advertised services include humanitarian demining, explosive ordnance disposal, dog handling, counter poaching, and, quote, specialized security, unquote. In this last category, Dyke performed counterinsurgency combat aviation operations in Mozambique, replacing Wagner when they were withdrawn. There are noteworthy differences between Wagner and Dyke that are important to keep in mind through this series of podcasts. Unlike the Russian entities, Dyke is regularly incorporated under the laws of South Africa and is accountable to that government, and particularly its anti-mercenary laws. Second, Dyke is very sensitive to allegations of misconduct, both from a legal and reputational aspect. After Amnesty International published a report claiming that the Dyke armed helicopters indiscriminately fired into the local population, Dyke hired a team of independent lawyers to investigate the charges and fully cooperated with, and was cleared by, a Mozambican military investigation. Dyke is not the only incorporated private military company in Africa. Another such company is STEP, S-T-T-E-P, which stands for Specialized Tasks, Training, Equipment, and Protection. Until recently, it was run by Eben Barlow, a retired South African lieutenant colonel and founder of Executive Outcomes. Remember Executive Outcomes? Now, STEP was open and transparent in its contracts with the Nigerian government in its fight against Boko Haram, and in a show of accountability under the law, STEP's personnel became members of the Nigerian Armed Forces for the duration of the contract. This was a common feature in contracts made by STEP and in executive outcomes before it. Late last year, Colonel Barlow stepped down as chairman of STEP, and, allegedly at the request of several African governments, including that of South Africa, he is now restarting executive outcomes. Contrast this with the way of doing business with Wagner-type operations. About the same time as Amnesty International allegations against Dyke appeared, a report was released by the UN Working Group on Mercenaries on the activity of Russian irregular forces in the Central African Republic. It alleged grave human rights abuses and potential violation of international laws of war. The Russian embassy, rather than investigating these reports, as Dyke did, dismissed the abuse allegations with indignation, calling them baseless accusations against those who are trying to restore peace and order. Russians and South Africans aren't the only combat providers out there. The United Arab Emirates allegedly funds quasi-mercenary forces in Somalia, Yemen, and Libya. And Turkey is similarly accused of funding and transporting mercenary-like operatives in Libya and Azerbaijan. And I am sure that's only the tip of the proverbial iceberg. But why do these organizations even exist? Why not use regular armed forces, whether they're Russian or American or Israeli or Mozambican? Why does Mozambique openly contract for commercial combat providers anyway? Most of the work done by these private companies is not combat, but actually training of the indigenous military forces, whether they're Central African Republic, Mozambique, Nigerian, and so on. Well, why don't they use the like special forces or other specialized training services of one of the major powers? Why do African governments encourage even Barlow to restart the most famous of these private military companies? The short answer was given by Colonel Lionel Dyke, the founder and chairman of advisory group, who simply said, we're doing something that nobody else can do or has wanted to do. So use what you've got. And if it's not efficient, fire us. It's as simple as that. I'm happy to go home. In the next podcast, I'll build on that answer with specific reasons for a government to contract out elite combat forces. So look for the next installment of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. 
I'm Chris Mayer.